0: felt stifled by the status quo within my legal industry um, and, I, and I wanted to create something new um, and over the years I, I, I sort of you know touched on loads of different startups in different spaces um, I tried different functions I learned the things that I liked things that I didn't like I learned the things uh, that were that I was good at the things that I wasn't good at I like I the industries that excited me and inspired me those that didn't uh, and probably the most importantly, and the thing that's that stayed with me for the longest is um, I learned about the ways that you can build uh, teams and develop people successfully, and I, and I learned about the type of cultures that, that, that I think don't do that, and the type of cultures that I want to avoid in, in the companies that I work in and in the companies that I run.
1: Welcome to the Watchword podcast, exploring life's big decisions and the factors behind them. In this episode, I spoke to Samuel Hall. Samuel started his career studying law at Oxford before going on to work in corporate law for several years. After a great deal of reflection, Samuel changed tack and moved into the world of startups. He then worked in a variety of functions within different startups. Gaining a generalist skill set, becoming comfortable with risk and acquiring the ability to change direction quickly led to his second career building new ventures. Samuel now lives in Singapore and is the APAC CEO of a company called Rainmaking, that builds new startups and ventures with established corporate partners. I love talking to Sam and I hope you enjoy it too. And you can connect with him on LinkedIn at Samuel Hall. And please do follow the Watchword podcast on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn.
2: Hello, Sam. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's really great to be talking to you. I know you're out in Singapore at the moment. So how are things going with you?
0: Uh, super, super good. Thank you for hosting me. Um, Very nice to be here with you. Um, Everything is well in Singapore. We're under lockdown, um, like most of the rest of the world, um, which is a bit difficult for me personally, because I've got an 11-month-old daughter who's been Mm -hmm. taken out of infant care, and she's causing havoc for myself and my wife whilst we're trying to work. Um, But I think that's very much a a third-world
2: problem. Yeah, well, and... Sorry,
0: a first-world problem, I should say. Yeah.
2: Well, it's a um, it's definitely a common one. I think the challenge that parents are having at the moment, like you see um, different things that people are putting out trying to work whilst whilst, you know, look after the the child or children. It's it it can't be easy.
0: It's not. Um, it's, it's. I'm finding it pretty difficult. I guess it's It's our first child. Um, and it's the first time we've been in this scenario. And of course, this is just, just a bizarre scenario for everybody um, in terms of being cooped up in, in the same place for so long. Um, and myself, and my wife, my wife's a solicitor. Um, and, and both of us, the type of work that we do uh, to really deliver value, you have to sit and think and mull and let stuff marinate and, uh, and, and, and basically try to deliver um, intensive thought and work to achieve valuable outputs. And so when you've got an 11-month daughter who's, who's running around and constantly wants attention and, and 20, 30 seconds on her own is all that she can, uh, she can handle, um, it's difficult. And the, the problem for me is that I like to work to a schedule. Um, and the schedule has gone out of the window for the last four, five, six weeks, uh, cause I might get pulled into something, uh, to look after my daughter, if my wife's got to get into a meeting or a call, um, or, 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 I might have something in the diary that I'm going to spend three hours on. And in, in, in eventuality, I only get to spend 20, 30 minutes on it. Um, so that's the big problem I'm facing at the moment.
2: Mm. Have you not, have you tried explaining the value of, of deep work and focus to your to your eleven eleven month old, <laughs> I've tried explaining lots of things
0: to her, um, but she's uh, she, she's she's not for listening to my explanations just yet. She'll okay. shrug her shoulders and point up to the ceiling uh, and, and want to play. Where's the light
2: uh, again? <laughs> okay. okay, well, a work in progress, I guess. Maybe try next month. Yes. <laughs> um so it's it's great to it's great to be talking to you um you you haven't been in the army which is which is quite an achievement in terms of people who are guests on this podcast so i'm really pleased about that because that as i've sort of said since the beginning the aim is to diversify um so we're we're sort of finally managing to do that so that's that's awesome um but you have been to oxford university like one of our other guests and uh and, and that's kind of in some respects where where some sort of interesting, I don't know, realisations or developments started to to take place. So you you studied law at Oxford, didn't you? And then you 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 embarked on the beginnings of a of a legal career.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly right. And, and I should say I I feel a little bit out of place uh, not having a military background. Um, so so hopefully uh, that won't hold me back in terms of adding value to the podcast. Um, <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but yes, I, so 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 I, I studied law. Um, I started my career um, as a lawyer, um, and but I don't think I ever felt much passion or excitement or, or sort of commitment to that profession. Um, and I think in, in retrospect, my choosing to study law um, was was a result of whilst I was in school, I I don't think I had a great view on what the potential options were for me to study. Um, And I don't think I had um, massive context about, you know, the potential career paths for me. And I think in reality, you know, if I went back and look at my life as a 15, 16 year old, the type of work that I do now was, was not really, um, readily available, um, as a, uh, as, as a, career path. And there's no sort of, um, degree pathway that, that gets you to what it is that I, that I do today. And I kind of just fell fell into doing law. Um, it was, you know, considered to be a, uh, a respectable degree, uh, uh you know sort of a sort of prestigious degree it was something that my parents you know advocated for they said this is good you should go and you should go and do that that will set you up well what a lot of people said at the time was it's very transferable. Um, it gives you a, a skill set that you can actually go and do anything you want afterwards. Um, I don't actually, I don't actually agree with that, but at the time I, I, I didn't know any better, and, and so I went along with that. And yep, then I did three years study of law, uh, and the first thing I did out of university was um, criminal prosecution. Um, so I went to work um, with the UN um, in Den Haag, and I was doing a, a prosecution um, in one of the uh, war crimes tribunals. Wow. Um, and after that, I then went into corporate law, um, worked in corporate law for a few years primarily in London. Um, and, and by that point, uh, I think I was, uh, to put it bluntly, I, I was done with being a lawyer and I was done with the law. Uh, and if I'm, if I'm quite honest about it, I suspect the law was done with me, uh, because I wasn't super passionate about it. And, and so I think it made it difficult for me to genuinely be elite, um, at that work. Um, and, and I'm of the view that if you're going to do something, then you should aspire to be elite at it. Um, and I didn't want to do something that did not excite me. But also, you know, that that meant that I was sort of felt like I was on a treadmill. It was a bit of a chore. Um, and when you're doing chores, it's hard to always do them at 100 um, percent output. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that, that led me away from the law.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you've you've written quite a lot of content in terms of blogs. Obviously, you speak at, um, at some events. And uh, yeah, the content's really quite interesting. And we, we connected through a, a mutual friend and had a chat before I'd actually seen a lot of the content that you've written, which you've sort of subsequently shared with me. And there's a little extract, which I think, you know, you kind of summarized some of the challenges that you, that you found in terms of the law uh, and your place within it as a professional. Um, but this little extract, I think, is, is from a blog that you wrote with the title, why you need an employer that genuinely wants you to bring your whole self to work. And it's just, just the first couple of um, paragraphs, which I think are pretty, pretty interesting. So, at the start of my career, I was doing something that I didn't enjoy and didn't gain any fulfillment or gratification from. I know many others in the same position. Even with a fantastic life outside of work, I was continually dispirited and stifled by my professional dissatisfaction. I don't believe that you can separate personal and professional happiness. The two are intrinsically linked and dependent on each other. I don't believe that I was unusual. An unacceptably large number of people face the same disillusionment. And since I don't believe that you can separate personal and professional happiness, what that means is that an unacceptably large number of people are destined to see their personal happiness continually stifled and ultimately unfulfilled by their professional sadness.
0: Yeah, um, and and it, I think it rings true. Um, I, I think I wrote that quite a while ago, but it 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 rings true for sure now. Um, and I think that sort of that starting point, that first path in my career going down the legal route, um, uh, it, it it sort of triggered in me this this personal mission to 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 take fulfillment from the work that I was doing, um, because when I wasn't being fulfilled by the work that I was doing it was constantly nagging at me. So outside of work, outside of the office, when I was socializing, when I was playing sport, whatever it is I was focusing on, I, I felt constantly sort of this um, undercurrent of, 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 of feeling like I just wasn't achieving my potential. I think it's probably the best way to, to describe it. Um, and, and feeling like I was almost undermining the, the aspiration that I had had you know, growing up. And, 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 and actually one way that I often thought about it was that I had I felt very lucky in my life um, because I'd, you know, I'd, I'd sort of in, enjoyed my life in school. Um, I'd, I'd enjoyed, I'd, I went traveling for a year before I went to university and, and that was, you know, effectively the, the time of my life. Um, at that point in time, I then went to university and that was better. So that was then the time of my life. Um, And I then when I left university, I I did some more traveling. It was better. Um, I went and worked uh, with the UN, which, whilst I was doing law, and I'm not particularly excited and and inspired by that, the experience of working in such a multicultural environment, so many people from from around the world, you know, all coming together to work on sort of work that they genuinely believed in the impact um, and and spending time professionally and socially with all of these different people. um, I felt like it was even better. I felt like my life was on this sort of, incredibly fortunate upward curve and then bam like I, I felt completely smashed back down to earth you could say um when, when i went into corporate law um, and, and i just felt that you know my, i was no longer um achieving the output that i would be proud of um, i was no longer you know excited and inspired by what i was doing day to day and i didn't see a path ahead of me that excited and inspired me and i think that was probably the biggest piece um, because I think everybody in every career path has to take the rough with the smooth, and everybody in every career path um, will have periods of time where they don't enjoy the work that they do. And there's plenty of work that I do today that I, I don't enjoy, but it has to be done. Um, but as long as you can see the vision and, and, and the mission, and you buy into that and you believe in it, and there's a place ahead of you which you want to get to, um, and there's a, a you know work ahead of you that you're excited about doing, and impacts that you can create ahead of you that you're excited about achieving. Um, then, then, then you can put aside the bad stuff. Um, but I, I felt like there was no sort of light at the end of the tunnel. There was no sort of job up the ladder that I was excited to do. There was, there was no role really that, that, that got me inspired. Um, and I felt that if I then kept moving along that same path, um, then I wasn't being true to myself. I wasn't being true to my own ambition. And quite importantly, I felt that I would be letting down my parents um, simply because... I think when I was younger, like like many 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 people, um, my parents sacrificed a lot for the sake of giving their children the sort of the best prospect and, and and the best starting point. Um, and, and whether that was money, whether that was their own you know sort of social time or, or whatever it might be, um, they sacrificed for for me and, and for my two brothers and my sister, uh, so that I could get to a point in life really, if you distill it, where I would be really happy. Um, and what I was doing in my legal career, I was certainly not really happy um, I, I was actually incredibly I, I wouldn't say i was I was depressed but but that those types of feeling um, about the work that I was doing I certainly wasn't inspired and excited I certainly wasn't happy about it um, and I felt that that was you know uh, that's not what i've been taught to do my, by my parents i've been taught to um, to focus on what I wanted to do and to go out and achieve it. Uh, and I felt that I was letting myself down, I was letting people like that down and people who supported me, I, I felt I was letting them down just by continuing along the, the same path, even though I wasn't feeling so fulfilled about it.
2: So one of the reasons that this is such an interesting sort of reflection from someone in your position is that, is that I'm sure quite a few people can relate to, to, those, to those feelings and that, that situation. Uh, and that 's one of the reasons that that we 're doing the podcast it 's to it 's to reflect on on the journeys of of people um, and to learn lessons from them so uh, so you know we 're kind of getting nearer to that point but whats what 's interesting is is the opportunity that you that you had on paper because you you had gone to one of the best universities in the world and and then got straight into a career with with uh, some some impressive achievements early on. So you were you were well and truly on the ladder um, t- to to achieve you know a really impressive legal career. So coming up with the sort of the the courage to make that decision to to depart must have been quite challenging. And you know, did you feel pres- external pressures or what? You know, where how did you feel when you were when you were building up to make the decision?
0: Yeah, I think. Um... I think you're right that, that there is a, I think the easier path is to stay. Um, the easier path is, is to keep going in the direction that you've been going. Um, and at this point in time, you know, I was a, a young lawyer. Um, I'd only been doing it for a few years. Um, so, I, you know, I was, I was fortunate that I, you know, I wasn't, should we say, constrained by um, you know, a mortgage and a family and children and things like this. So, so I perhaps had more freedom at the time than I might have done later in life to change. Um, but there is, a, uh, I think I felt um, quite a lot of, um, not necessarily pressure not to leave externally, uh, but just the advice and the guidance from, from, from parents and friends and, and peers and things like that um, was, you know, basically if you do leave, then what are you going to do? Um, and you're throwing away all of the work that you've done so far Um, and and speaking to a lot of people who've sort of faced the same conundrum and and many who have also stopped being lawyers um, I think they've felt the same sentiments and and, and had those same sentiments expressed to them Um, and, and then it's I think you said courage and, and I feel like a bit of a fraud saying that it takes courage to do this. I don't, I, you know, it's, it's, it's again, another sort of first world problem. Um, Oh, you know, you're, you're fortunate to be in this you know, position of, uh, you know, early stage professional success. Um, you're fortunate to be in a position where you have options. There are so many people around the world who don't have options, who, who, you know, will give, give everything for, for that type of life that, that, that I was able to have at the time. And so, so I feel like it's difficult to, um, to, to sort of take praise for simply making a decision to leave, um, but I don't think that then that that makes it necessarily for lots of people any easier to make that decision and any easier to go and do something else. And the reason why is it's what, what you have to accept when you stop being a lawyer. Um, I think at that early stage, and I probably I know this simply from retrospect of having having done it and thought about it a lot. Um, but you have to accept that. What, everything, what everyone has always told you, um, you, you will develop a lot of transferable skills. You will put yourself in a position to go and do all sorts of other things. Um, in reality, I don't think that's true um, because when you've been studying to be a lawyer and then you've been working as a lawyer and you've been developing that skill set, you've been developing a quite specialist skill set. Um, and you've also been developing a skill set which is not applicable to all sorts of other areas of work. So I should probably say at this point what I do. Um, now. Um, and what I do now is is I, I basically work to build new ventures. Um, so, so my company Rainmaking, we, we're, we're basically a new ventures company. Um, and we power the creation of new ventures with corporate partners. So effectively startups that are built by entrepreneurs and corporates together. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so the, the, there is a huge gulf between um, the sort of skill set you need, and the um, type of mentality and approach you take when building startups, to what you apply and the approach you take when you're a lawyer. Um, and very simply, as a lawyer, it pays to be risk averse. Yeah. Um, and and as somebody starting a a new startup or a new venture or validating a new venture from scratch, it pays um, to accept risk and it pays to explore risk and it pays to identify areas of opportunity which inevitably are shrouded by risk because if they were certain, then then they wouldn't be innovative. Uh, And the only way you succeed with new ventures is by targeting innovative spaces. Um, So there's a a big disconnect between the two. Um, and, And I think for me, the reality was I knew that my mindset was not well attuned to being a lawyer but I also suspected at the time I certainly didn't know for sure and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do but I suspected that the type of work that I did want to do was a lot more akin to the type of work I do now Um, so basically entrepreneurialism and building startups Um, and the the difficulty there is you actually have to be quite honest and accept that everything I've learned and the type of practitioner I've, I've been um, positioned as up until this point is not transferable. And therefore, anything I might like to do next, I'm kind of starting from um, first principles and, and, and ground zero. And the problem there is that you've now invested X years of your career um, working on something and to leave, you kind of have to go back to the start. Um, and that's um, humbling. Um, but it's also for, for many people quite difficult because you have to take a pay cut and that's inevitable. Yeah. And the reality is if you're working in the city and you're working in you know, law or banking or things like that, you get paid quite well. Um, so if you then sort of give that up and say, okay, I'm gonna start again, And you accept that you have to go and um, sort of earn your stripes, um, then the reality is you accept you're going to get paid, you know, a a relatively small amount versus what you used to get. And so you have to be able to, you have to be comfortable with making that transition. I think that is the the biggest sort of unsolved question um, in my mind for how to support others to do the same thing. Um, Over the years, a lot of people have asked me about how they should do a similar transition out of law and I can answer all of the questions around uh, you know sort of preoccupation with what your peer group think about you. Um, I can answer all the questions about things that you should do, actionable steps that you can take to develop a skill set and move in a new direction. Um, I can answer you know all the questions about you know sort of validating different pathways and figuring out what where you should be and what you should do or at least I feel I can. But the one I can't really answer is Well, how do I get away from the problem that you know? On the one hand, I've got uh, quite good money at the moment, um, and if I jump into this other thing, I won't have that money. How do I solve the money problem? Um, And and I don't have an answer for that. So it's a bit difficult. But again, uh, it's a first-world problem. Mm.
2: Well, I think in terms of it taking courage to make the decision, I I personally think it it does. Um, And whilst you know, it's all it's all relative, I, I guess there are lots of people who might be wondering what they're going to do next or what they're going to do in five, 10, 15 years. And, um, I think that listening to that kind of a, a story from someone who in theory had, had it, had it all, um, mapped out is, is great for people to listen to. Um, because it, it demonstrates that people, you know, maybe get dissatisfied, at, 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 you know, across the whole spectrum of, of, prof- of their professional life. And, um, and change direction accordingly. Um, so, so yeah, I think it, it sounds as if creativity was something that was maybe lacking, and that you were that you were pursuing. Um, your current role and rainmaking as an organisation looks like it's pretty creative.
0: Yes, yeah, uh, and I think it's quite a good way to to describe it. I think the the problem I had with, with working in law was I felt stifled, mm. um, and 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 in the type of work that I that I do now, I I feel sort of empowered. Um, to, to pursue things that I'm excited about. Um, but but what, what, what I should definitely make clear is that um, I, I don't have a, a problem with working in the law itself and I don't have a problem with the legal industry itself. And mm-hmm. I guess from my perspective, it's incredibly important um, that, that we as people um, ask ourselves very honestly what it is that excites us and what it is that we're passionate about and what it is that we want to achieve. Um, and, and, and there are some, uh, professions that will allow us to achieve that. And there are others that won't, I guess a really good analogy is many people, um, go to the gym. I expect many people listening to this, go to the gym, um, and different people when they go to the gym will use different equipment or, or take different approaches or do different exercises depending on, you know, the output that they want to achieve. Um, if you want to get very strong, um, you will work out with weights. If you want to build, Stamina for your Ironman, you will do a lot of cardio work. If you want to build, you know, um, core strength and agility, you know, then, then, then you might do a lot, a lot of mat work and, and, and you might do a lot of, um, gymnastics training and things like that. So depending on what the output is you want to achieve, you will do different things. And the same is of course true um, with professions. Depending what you want to achieve out of your career, what makes you proud, and that's completely different for different people, um, then, then you pursue a profession that allows you to do that. I, my, the thing that I am very passionate about is, if you don 't see a path to 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 pride in in the work that, that, that you 're doing currently um, then, then you should find new work to do um, and, and, and and I guess that 's very much what what i 've uh, followed um, and I think it 's something you know many people far more um, famous and important and influential than me obviously say the same things. I think Steve jobs, I'm going to bastardize the quote, but he said something to the effect of, um, you know, every day I get up and I look myself in the mirror. Um, and I think about what I'm going to be doing that day. And if I look in the mirror too many days in a row and I'm not excited about the work that I'm doing, then I know I need to make a change. Um, something to that effect. And that's very much the way, the way that I approached it and very much the way that I thought about it. And, and and the reality is that, yes, I wanted to do creative pursuits and I wanted to create things. Um, I wanted to build things that were new. I, I, I was looking for opportunity, um, in different areas and, and, and I was excited about startups and I was excited about entrepreneurialism. And I think the reason I was excited about that was um, you're creating um, and, and you're solving problems and you're building something uh, that you can point to and be proud of. You're building, a, a whether it's a, a singular business or a product or a venture, whether it's a portfolio, but you're building something that you can be genuinely excited and, and, and proud of the, the impact that you're delivering. And that was in, incredibly important to me. Um, and, and I think in, in startups you can do that. You can also fail at doing that, but you can you can you, you, you can try to do it. You can uh, you can walk the path of of creation, uh, and you can walk the path of you know um, uh, changing the status quo. Uh, and, and that was super important to me because I felt stifled by the status quo within my legal industry, um, and I and I wanted to create something new. Um, and so that really has taken me on the path. Then um, through through a host of, of different startups in the years after I I stopped being a lawyer. Um, so so I, I was I, I founded my own companies. I worked with other startups. I, I, I volunteered with companies. I just said, look, you guys are doing something super cool. I want to come and work on this. I want to learn about product management. So I'll come and work with you on you know on, on some of the stuff that, that that you're bringing to market and let me learn and, and see what I can contribute. I want to learn about partnerships and business development in the startup context. Let me come and work with you on that. I want to learn about content let me come work with you on that um, and over the years I, I, I sort of you know touched on loads of different startups in different spaces um, i tried different functions i learned the things that i liked things that i didn't like i learned the things uh, that were that i was good at the things that i wasn't good at i like i learned the industries that excited me and inspired me those that didn't uh, and probably the most importantly and the thing that's that stayed with me for the longest is um i learned about the ways that you can build, uh, teams and develop people successfully. And I, and I learned about the type of cultures that, that, that I think don't do that. And the type of cultures that I want to avoid in, in the companies that I work in and, and the companies that I run. Um, and really all of that led me to the point where, um, when I, when I came back to Singapore, when I sort of moved here permanently with my wife about, um, one and a half years ago, um, the, what I did when, when I came to Singapore is I, I went and worked for a, um, a startup accelerator. Um, and basically I was, I was running a startup accelerator in fintech, um, in, in Singapore, uh, and using sort of everything that I'd learned up until that point to support new companies that, that were, that were, uh, were developing in the fintech industry in, in, in the APAC region, uh, and, and enabling them to, um, build quicker, build faster, build smarter, um, and also to work with the corporate sector here, so the banks in, in this region, and to develop, develop their propositions that way. And that's really what, 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 I, what I was doing when I first came to Singapore, and then over time I've evolved the, the proposition, or we've evolved the proposition and the type of work that we do in rainmaking. Um, and now we're really in this region a um, a new ventures company. So, so creating new business, creating new companies, and doing that in tandem with corporate. So really, if I if I distill everything I've said in that in that very long monologue, you know, I felt stifled as a lawyer, um, and I felt like I was treading a a path of status quo, um, and I felt that I, I didn't have the opportunity to create. I was, I, was, I was executing, I was um, operationalizing, but I wasn't creating, and I wasn't um, challenging um, you know, existing paradigms. And what I do now is, is we're exploring where are the areas where we can create? Where are the areas where we can challenge existing paradigms? And then we work with corporate partners to leverage the entrepreneurial competence uh, of us, of rainmaking and the founders, and, and, start, and, and startups and entrepreneurs, and then the corporate assets uh, that our corporate partners hold. Uh, and what that means is we can build new ventures more quickly. We can validate them more effectively. Um, we, can, we can achieve impact um, uh, you know, at scale um, in, in a far shorter time frame and with greater impact. So that's what I do now, and it's really just a shift um, from being stifled to being empowered.
2: Yeah, that's, that's great. And it's, it's exciting to, to hear about Rainmaking and to talk about what you're... What you're doing now and um and we'll definitely um we're definitely going to talk about that shortly one one thing that you one thing that you said uh when we were talking previously which i found or find interesting is that if you looking back if you were 18 again you wouldn't go to university
0: uh yes yeah um and i think it's uh so i so i don't know if i 100 percent believe that um, that there, there, I believe, I believe it um, in in many ways. Um, that I, I think that that what I did at university from an academic perspective, um, you know, has not really. Um, uh, set me up uh, for, 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 for anything really that I've done beyond that. Um, I think, I think part of that is that I was studying a subject that, that I I just wasn't passionate about and wasn't excited about. Um, uh, and I think that, that, that part of it is, I think the best education is, is, is personal exploration. I think the best education, I think you have to be, um, independent and you have to be autonomous and you have to be um, aspirational and ambitious and and you seek out what you need to learn and then you learn it Um, and I think we live in a world today where it's never been easier to do that um, at any time in the past and I think that's fantastic because I think it totally empowers uh, all of us and certainly the, the sort of emerging youth but from my perspective the what I learned at university, um, I'm, not sure I <laughs> I'm not sure I remembered very much of it afterwards, um, and, and it just wasn't applicable even as a lawyer. So the legal degree is not is not really, in my mind, applicable to practicing as a, as a corporate lawyer. So I'm not sure that you necessarily need to do it um, to, to be in a position to, to do your work. And I certainly don't think that you need to take three years um, education in a space that, you know, at least in, in the British school system that I was in, um, to, to, to sort of focus on this one subject, this one degree, and be judged on, on, on what your piece of paper says at the end of that, and judge on yeah. your you know, the grade that you get. So I think for me, that part of it, um, I don't, massively see the value. I think there's better ways of educating um, our, our children. But the bit where I say that maybe it's not 100% true is I know for certain that my sort of experience in terms of meeting new people and meeting people from different walks of lives and, and um, and, and you know, spending that time um, growing up um, between the ages of I think I was 19 to 22 at university, um, then that's super valuable. Um, uh, but I think it can be delivered in different ways. Uh, and, and, and I'm excited about the future of education and what that looks like because I think that the the most maturing and and growing up that I did was probably between 18 and 19 um, when I went traveling for a year and I I felt that that that's when I grew up, Um, not not really when I was in university. Um, So actually I think I probably could have contributed by the time I was 19 in the real world Uh, and I didn't need to sort of go through university to to be in a position to do that.
2: That's really interesting. So if you what do you think an 18 year old, or I guess it doesn't have to be 18, but anyone in that kind of uh, age bracket, you know, starting out in their career, what, what kind of things do you think they should maybe pursue in order to, in order to learn?
0: So I think it depends what they want to do. Um, I, think there is, I, think, I think we should teach based on values. Um, and I think it's important that we focus on what are the values that we would like to see uh, in our people as a whole. And I think this is actually a, 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 quite a smart way to think about parenting um, in terms of what, what are the values I would like to see in my children? Um, or another way to look at it is um, h- how, would, how would I like my child to be treated? Um, and, and what you don't want is that your, your child is sort of mod- um, and, and you know everyone nice to, to the child because they won't learn and they won't grow. You want them to be challenged. Um, and 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 I think that how do you create um a sort of productive uh, person who contributes to society and, and delivers impact when you challenge them to develop a skill set that enables them to do that and and that's not to say that it's a copy paste skill set it's different in all sorts of different people but then very specifically if I had an 18, 18 year old or, or someone at that age saying to me okay cool what should I do then um how should I learn um then then I would sort of lay out a I think a a list of values that that I believe uh, are important, or maybe ask them to to sort of come up with their values that they believe are important Um, and then to identify experiments that will allow you to learn in those different areas. Um, And so that if you believe that a a, a value that's important is um, entrepreneurialism um, or um, ability to, to, to ideate new things, then you say, okay, well, Think about this particular area of the world, this particular industry, um, and, and go, go and speak to people in that industry and explore where there's a new opportunity to create something, yeah. Um, yeah. and then actually create something um, and, and see if you can you can add some value there um, and learn by doing. Because I feel like everything I've done in my everything I've learned and where I've got to at this point in my life has been has been learning by doing and learning by failing. Um, and 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 I think that uh, a sort of taught, um, education system doesn't necessarily set you up in a great way to do that. But I believe in values like kindness. I believe in values like, um, autonomy and independence. I believe in values like meritocracy. Um, so I'd be creating curricula that supported the, the development of those values.
2: Yeah. So that's a, that's a really great answer. And, um, my, um, so I, I mean, schools do do that. They, they, a lot of schools have values, and they are on a, a journey in terms of, um, you, you know, the education model and moving, moving children into different environments to learn. So, learning outside um, and values-based learning, as well as the, the the challenges of trying to integrate with with technology. But it's it's interesting to think of the education system because it's because it's government-led for the most part. Uh, it, it as with most other governmental bodies they seem to there, there is a, a challenge around sort of scale and ability to innovate i think which yeah. um but it is it's fascinating and, and and also it made me think of um another podcast that we've done and and uh, and leadership training within the military so your idea of, of, of establishing what what values the individual has regardless of age is is a brilliant start point Um, because from there you work out what it is that's important to the individual. Um, and so there's, there's a model called values based leadership, which was introduced to the, to the army and it, 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 um, obviously it revolves around values themselves, which and the the sessions that, that we used to run, um, involve reflecting on what your personal values were and, you know, you had to write them down and all that, all that kind of stuff. And then try to see how, how and where they align to the organization. Uh, But then there's these inspirational leadership behaviors that are associated with that. So it's kind of like the vision challenge support model. And then the associated behaviors are things like role modeling, inspirational motivation, individual consideration, intellectual stimulation, uh, fostering group goals and high performance expectations. So it's really interesting to listen to you reflect on both your journey and how you would um. I don't know. Maybe like galvanize a young person to to pursue what it is that interests them, and just see the the correlation with different organisations and how uh, and how they go about achieving similar things. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, no, I, I I'm I, I mean I don't consider myself um, much of an expert in this space. It's certainly not any any type of an expert in this space. Um, but but I, I find it super interesting because I think that we are. Um, in our education system. Our education system has broadly not changed um, in the past. I don't know how many years, right? Certainly not in my lifetime. Um, You know, evolving slowly and incrementally, but we haven't seen step change in the way we're doing things. Um, And and I just think there are are fundamental things that we can now support with the technology that we have available in the world that will make a massive difference to our global productivity. So if you think about, if we can unlock like 0.1% additional um uh, of of every individual's potential um uh, 0.1 additionally then yeah for the individual that's you know not much of a change but for global impact and global productivity when you when you sort of tally that across everybody around the world then then what an enormous impact that would be and and we we have scenarios where we know that there are fantastic teachers around the world and there are some people who are very lucky because they are taught by these fantastic teachers and there are other people who are less lucky and they're taught by less fantastic teachers but we have the technology now whereby we can deliver um, education from these best teachers to everybody um, we can deliver it through digital means we can deliver it virtually but even more excitingly you know we can deliver this through VR um, and, and, and I feel like we're not doing enough collectively um, uh, at a sort of macro level to say, okay, how do we solve for the, the outputs we wanna see in our people? How do we you know, take the population within a particular country and say who are the best five or 10 teachers for maths or English or French or whatever it is? Or do we even need to teach those subjects? Different question. But who are these, who are these teachers and how do we deliver their uh, tutorials and their lectures and their classes to everybody? because then they get to learn from the best. Or how do we say, okay, how do we better set and stream uh, our schools because at the moment we, we generally believe okay let's put our children into uh, best in this subject worst in this subject the ones in the middle and then you get to work with those who are at your pace and at your level and so overall everybody develops a little bit better than if you put them in a in a, in a mixed group um, and, and generally that's the way that I think schools are set up why do we set within a school why do we not set within a city uh, or even better within a country or, or even why do we not aspire to set you know across Europe or globally. Um, so that then the, the sort of incremental gain for an individual might be small, but the exponential gain for, for the world would just be amazing in terms of productivity and output. Uh, and, and I find this stuff super exciting, super inspiring. I'd love to see um, where it will go um, in our lifetime. And I just think it will be a travesty if you know, the world that we live in in 30, 40 years' time, the education system looks the same as it does today. And I think the reality is it, it 100% won't. And, 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 and things like um, corona at the moment is is changing the education system because it's forcing the hand in so many different ways. Just like it's forcing the hand in the work system. That uh, so much now that has been, you know, we've been reluctant to take virtually, we are taking virtually and we're forced to do that. And I don't think we will go all the way back to where
2: we were before. And I think that's super exciting. Mm. Yeah. And it's even... Um, I don't mean to be flippant after what, what was quite a, a profound answer, but it, my, my podcasting model has been influenced. <laughs> like my original plan was not to do any podcast yeah. <laughs> via, um, um, via um, Skype or, or Zoom, but now it transpires that basically all of them are. And, it, and interestingly, it, it seems to work quite well, which I, I didn't anticipate that it would. So no, you, you're, you're absolutely right
0: well it probably helps you actually with productivity right because if you wanted you could line six up in a day back to back to back whereas if you had to go and meet people then you might you
2: might struggle to do that yeah well it's true i don't think i would have achieved the kind of volume or probably the the guest had i stuck to the original um plan but yeah six in a day i think by the end i would be combat ineffective Um, (laughs) (laughs) um yeah Um, so that's, so that's great. I mean, we've kind of touched on rainmaking and it sounds like such a interesting and exciting organization. I've read up on it and clearly they're, they're based all over the world. Um, and your responsibility largely lies in Asia Pacific region. Is that that correct?
0: Yep. Spot on. So, so I'm in Singapore. Um, we have offices here in Singapore, in Australia and in Japan. And so we cover this region out of those offices and yeah, that's, that's my responsibility.
2: Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's it, it it's it looks like a, an awesome job, and you've kind of there's a kind of reoccurring theme with enabling creativity and um, and growth and developing teams, um, which is which is pretty clear. It, it, one thing that comes to mind is how how comfortable was the journey from you know when you initially took that leap, and you've been involved in different startups, different projects, lots of variety. Was it a comfortable journey or? how how did how's it gone to get to that point
0: um no I don't think it was a comfortable journey and, and it was I think one of those journeys where you you go forward and, and then and then you fall down and you go backwards and you go sideways and then you slide down a slope and then you get back up and you try again um I think it was very much that type of path um and and I think there would oh, I mean they were definitely it was definitely challenging um, and there was no clear path to, to what I'm doing now. And it certainly wasn't the case that I stopped being a lawyer and said the job that I would like is the one that I do now. The reality is I didn't know. Um, and, 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 you ha- and I think you have to experiment. So, so what you do, it's like building a startup. Um, so, so my view on, on building new companies and building a startup is you basically say, um, what, where do I believe the end point is? Where, where do I believe the value sits? And, 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 and therefore, what is a solution that I think can capture that value? And this is just a hypothesis, just your vision. Mm. And you say, okay, for that to be true, if I'm right about this, then for, what, what must be true for, for that to end up being the case? For there actually to be value there and for it actually to be capturable. Um, and, and, and then you start designing experiments that allow you to test for all of these things that must be true. Um, and if it turns out that something is not true, which you need to be true, is there another way around? Um, so, so is there a a different path to get to the end value or have you found out that end value sits in a different area and then you actually need to sort of build towards a different end vision. And of course with most startups, the the vision does change Uh, and and, and what you sit down on day one thinking you're going to do versus when you achieve success and exit and IPO and all this stuff, what you've actually built is often quite different from what you thought um, you were going to build. And I think the same is very true for career um, transition. Um, and, and, and for changing and, and for moving in different directions. So the, the reality for me is when I was a lawyer, I thought, or at least my initial hypothesis was that I wanted to work in sports management. Um, I'd, I've always played a lot of sport. I've always been massively interested and passionate in it. Um, and I thought that you know, sports management, sports agency sounded like a, the place to be. And, and, and I thought that that would be where I would find my fulfillment. Yeah. Um, So what I did without realizing at the time, I'm basically retrospectively now applying sort of lean startup principles to it. But, but what I did at the time was say, okay, um, I'm going to experiment with that. Um, and so what needs to be true? Um, well, I need to like working in that industry is one thing. Um, and, and, and so, So what I did was, whilst I was still a lawyer, actually, I started working with a um, a, a startup in in the sports industry. Um, And it was effectively a a sports agency. So an emerging sports agency startup that was supporting um, um, uh, underprivileged um, children in sports sort of emerging communities who didn't have the financial support and the access to be able to sort of develop and perfect their craft. Um, So high potential um, kids who, you know, who, who could have maybe have gone somewhere uh, in sport, uh, but didn't have the support to be able them to train at the high level and to have the equipment they needed and things like this. Uh, and that was really the, the vision of, of that startup. And, and I just helped them from a um, sort of administrative perspective, from a um, you know, legal documentation perspective in terms of agency agreements and partnership agreements and things like that. Uh, and some of the strategy around, around conceptualizing and, and building that company. And, and I, this was when I was still a lawyer, I just volunteered my time to do it. Mm. And I quickly learned, okay this is not an area where actually I'm interested to pursue Um, because the work is, you know, in essence, quite similar to what I'm doing as a lawyer. And that work, if I have to sit down and do that hour after hour, um, I find that stifling and I I find that, you know, for want of a better expression, just very boring, very unfulfilling for me personally. Um, But I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't done that work. Um, I then did sort of a second experiment, which was basically I went to speak to everybody in that industry. Uh, And I went to speak to a lot of sports agents, uh, and I went to understand what they did on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and, And what I've learned is that it's very useful if you're looking at a new career to go into, to ask very simple, very specific questions about what people do, and then persist with the line of inquiry. And what I mean by that is, so what's it like at work? What do you do? People would typically give you a bit of a high-level answer. Um, And I guess the marketing spiel or or the blurb from the grad recruitment prospectus or from their sales material or whatever it is. So we deliver values. I mean, what I would say um, with with, with rainmaking is, you know, we build new startups with corporate partners. That sounds amazing. Um, But then you say, okay, so when you get to work in the morning on a a typical day, um, you sit down or stand up at your desk, what do you do? And, and, then, you, and, and then, then you might get a sort of second level uh, of detail and then you ask again, but specifically on that, what do you do? And if you go into all of these tasks, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Uh, then ultimately the reality of the work comes out uh, and, and you want to be um, convinced that the reality of the work that's coming out is genuinely exciting for you. Um, and in my context with the work that I do now, if you pushed and pushed and pushed, you would get some things around. Yeah, I, I send emails to some of our you know corporate partners, and I send them to new corporate partners where we're discussing things to do, and you know effectively do sales in some respects. Um, but other answers and that stuff, you know, is maybe not the most exciting in the world. But other stuff will be. Okay, well, we, we, you know, we we go and speak to customers and understand where they're understanding pain points in a particular space, then we conceptualize what a potential solution might be that might solve for that pain point. Um, And we sit and we think and we brainstorm, we invest time in deep work, and we experiment. Uh, and we're constantly guided by the data that we see. And it's unbelievably exciting. And You can tell that I'm excited about this. Other people might not be. But if you start to see, you know, types of work and, 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 and sort of tasks, in inverted commas, that, that people are doing that you, that you are inspired by, then you start to understand that, that that's the, the, the sort of place for you, potentially. Uh, and, and you take one step forward. So you tick the first box. But the path to where you want to get to at the end in terms of your career, there are many boxes to tick. And some of them are about the type of work that you do, the quality work that you do. Some of them will be about geographically where they are. Some of them will be the people that you work with. For me, that's incredibly important. For others, it's less important. Um, for, for some people, it's I need to work with people. For others, it's I want to work on my own. But you you don't know about these things until you do them, until you experiment and, 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 and you learn from the data. So it's very similar, I think, to, to building companies and building startups. You set out the experiments to be run. You run the experiments and then you, you you sort of reposition based on the data that you, that you see
2: hmm. so you touched you mentioned deep work there uh, just very briefly and that's that's something that you've actually introduced me to I, I think I, I might have heard it before but i I'm, I'm not sure and uh, in your in your in your preamble and intro to to some of the topics and things that you're up to it's something that you you believe passionately in so could you for people who haven't heard of it and aren't aren't aware of it. How would you how would you summarize it as a concept?
0: Yeah, um, I'm I'm super passionate about it because I think it enables some um, people to 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 achieve more, um, and I think it empowers people to um, to, to better fulfil uh, their potential. Which which for me is, I guess, my underlying underlying mission. Um, in terms of how I would describe um, what is deep work. Um, So I I believe that it's creating um, an environment and a culture that enables you to invest um, significant mental capacity in um, difficult demanding challenges um, and to invest the time to work on uh, these difficult um, demanding challenges and and to then deliver outputs that genuinely take a step forward. Um, I think the world that we live in today, uh, there is obviously, there are, I should say, many demands on our time. Um, and that can be through the notifications on our phone. It can be through the constant emails that we receive. It can be through people coming tap you on the shoulder. It can be through the, the, the you know, the sort of um, pushes and pulls on Netflix and Facebook and everything else. There's an enormous um, demand on, on our time. And what that means is we have lesser possibly mental bandwidth than, than we've ever had before. Um, and, you know, if you go back in history, then people would sit and read books for hours on end or people would sit and think or people would walk. And the world we live in, or at least the world that I feel I live in, um, there, there's, there's a lot of constraint on, on that mental bandwidth. So deep work for me is simply about creating more bandwidth to work um, uh, deeply, intently, um, uh, and and, and to invest a lot of your sort of mental capacity um, on, or your your RAM, I guess, on on thinking about moving the needle um, and and exploring, experimenting with moving the needle. Um, And and really, the the reason I think it's so important is the type of work that I want to do is about creating and building. We talked about that earlier. Um, And specifically, it's about building uh, new, valuable businesses and and propositions. Um, So it's about doing innovation. Um, And and, and what I'm therefore asking myself to do, and I'm asking my teams to do, is to create something that delivers value that didn't exist before. Um, Or to deliver value in a way that we haven't seen it delivered before. So to create something new. Now, if creating something new was easy, then everybody would be doing it. Um, If innovation was easy, uh, then there would be far less of a premium on on, on doing this type of work. And we would see the world move forward at a far rapid pace than we have done. And we would see, for example, the education system constantly change overnight if innovation was so easy. But the reality is it's super uncertain and it's demanding and it's challenging to achieve breakthroughs. Um, Now, if I ask somebody, please, can you create a new business in this industry? Please go and figure out a, an area of opportunity uh, and then work to create that new business. What we know for sure is that the majority of, uh, of, of businesses that are attempted to build in that new, new space will, will die, will fail, because it's, it's really bloody hard. Um, so deep work is about creating an environment where we can step away from the, um, the, the sort of demands on our attention so that we can invest that time. And so then to, to put it very concretely, what that means to me is, so I take a day every week where I, I block out my calendar and I, and I won't take meetings and I, and I won't do sort of delivery workshops and I won't do anything with other people. I will create that time for myself. Um, and I won't do things like emails. I won't do things like you know, LinkedIn. I, you know, I won't do this sort of superficial tasks that can be done with a small amount of mental um, bandwidth. What I will do is sort of set out what are the biggest challenges that I'm working on, or the biggest projects that I want to take steps forward with, um, or the greatest value that, that I can deliver if I achieve something, if I if I succeed in, in in taking a step forward and moving something. And I will set blocks of time where I'm just working on that. And then the actual work that you do, that's for me um, not not so um, that's not so important. It's more about the vision and what you're striving towards and creating these sort of um, ring fenced environments where you won't have any notifications on your phone. You won't have any people sending you emails because you won't be in your email. Um, you won't have the attention distraction of having to go to meetings or potentially somebody asks you a question, you know, sitting next to you in the office or something like that. Um, but, but you will create an environment where you can focus um, uh, very simply. Um, and, and, and that's, I believe, where we, we get that sort of um, mental disconnect where we can achieve those breakthroughs and and for me personally i think for many people often when you go walking or running and 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 your your brain is now not focused sort of actively on, on on the challenge that you're facing but subconsciously marinating and mulling over that's when you have your biggest breakthroughs that's when you have your biggest ideas but but you can't do that if you haven't invested the time in the context, uh, in the work before. So you have to consume all of the material for your brain then to be able to process it and come up with the, with the outputs. And for me, that's what deep work is about. It's probably, I've probably overcomplicated it there, but that's how I think about it.
2: No, well, I think that made perfect sense. The term itself, I find as someone who hasn't come across it or read the book, that obviously there's a book by uh, Cal Newport, yeah. which is one of your recommended books, which we're gonna come onto later. Um, the term itself, I actually find a little bit—I um, don't know—I d- d- don't know if disconcerting is the right word, but it's just—it's almost as if it's like, oh, I wonder if I wonder if I'm capable of doing deep work. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody is capable yeah. of it, and it
0: manifests differently for different people.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, the two words I wrote down when you were d- describing it were uh, undistracted and strategic. Um, that was kind of the the. My yes. takeaways: You create the environment where you are undistracted, and then it's it's approaching it's approaching problem solving from like a strategic level as opposed to um, operational, um, which, um, which yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's a sort of a fair. I, um,
0: I think, Mark, you've improved my answer drastically. What I should have said uh, <laughs> when you asked me what deep work is, I should have said it's about creating the the environment um, to 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 invest in undistracted work. Uh, that will le- lead to strategically important outcomes there you go
1: <laughs> well yeah, but the, the, no, those words only came from your description so um,
2: <laughs> no that's that 's great, and I think it's uh, again there's there's some of themes between different episodes of the of the podcast, and there's i i, cu- I couldn 't agree more in terms of creating a different environment um, whether you're for anything really whether you're whether you 're trying to think of a sort of strategic level solution or trying to make a, a plan for your your life or your business or whatever it may be but also just creating different environments in which to operate anyway is beneficial like like you touched on going for a walk going for a run uh, varying your activity um is is it, it can assist that but in some ways i would almost see that as counter to the term deep work in my it, to me that kind of w- would make me think of you know sitting in a sitting in a dark room for 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 eight hours, which I guess is kind of why it's it, the the term um, the, the isn't something that immediately makes me think. Oh, I definitely want to do that. But w- the, your explanation kind of puts a bit more context. It's about creating mental clarity, um, rather than. Yeah, I mean, that's-
0: yeah, I think that's right, and I think um, the if, if, if anybody's listening and they think this is interesting, then um, the the thing to do is look up this book, Deep Work, by Cal Newport, who who has effectively popularized it, and 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 he is um, he I think in this in this area a genius. I'm sure he's probably a genius in many areas as well. Um, but but that's I, I would I would, I would Read his book because that will give far more context and insight than than I think we can discussing it. But but yeah. one thing I think I think he says which um, really works for me um, is what you said there about well you, you do you need to sit in a in a dark room and and sort of focus in a Zen Zen like monastic way yeah you can and that's useful but it's but you can also apply it to sort of repetitive meditative activity. So one thing that I do, and I must admit, um, haven't been great recently, even before the lockdown started. But one thing that I do, and I find useful is I I go swimming in the morning. Uh, And when I go swimming in the morning, I'll only swim for 20 minutes, something like that. Um, And uh, what I try to do is, I like swimming, Um, I find it quite difficult, I'm not particularly good, uh, but I like it. And I actually find it quite meditative, because it's repetitive. Um, and, and also because inevitably not being very good, I'm focusing on my breathing. Um, but what I've tried to incorporate is that for that 20 minutes or 30 minutes, um, I think about a big challenge that I'm having, um, or a, uh, solution that I've cracked, but I need to structure in a compelling way. Um, so I think about something that is strategically important to the work that I'm doing or, 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 or in my life outside of that. Um, and, and then I sort of let that marinade and mull over it for 20, 30 minutes whilst I'm swimming up and down in the pool. Um, and and I, I was astonished at how uh, useful that can be. And sort of, I get in the pool and I think I know what I'm going to do and I get out of the pool and I 100% know. And then my time to impact is massively reduced because I can put that into effect and into action immediately. Um, Whereas if I sat down and sort of thought that through, you know, started making a PowerPoint deck or something involved that, or started putting post-it notes on the board, or started, you know, speaking to people about it, um, then I might not get to the resolution as fast as if I allow my, Um, my sort of mind to embrace it in that distracted and undistracted environment whilst you're swimming. Um, And it's the same as I think why we have these breakthroughs when we're in the shower or when we're running and things like that, Um, because you need to take away all distraction and all sort of tangent to then be able to make that breakthrough. So I think you don't need to just sit in a room. You can go swimming or you can go running or walking or whatever it is. You just have to create the, the sort of freedom to think and process. But I think look at the book, understand the book, understand how Cal Newport talks about it. Uh, I think it's very inspiring.
2: That's great. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a great description there that you finished on. Yeah, I, I, I now I'm pretty keen to read the book. So uh, yeah, that's that's <laughs> awesome. So if we if we move on to um, your your current role and and rainmaking, because um, one of the things that you again have written a, an interesting blog piece about is is the concept of of innovation and it, it being startup led for the previous, you know, whatever it may be, 10, 20, maybe 30 years and, yeah. and a shift that you see in that innovation to being corporation led, uh, which is counterintuitive, I think for, for, for a lot of people. So how, how, where would you start with that? Yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, so I think you've, you've summarized it well that, that,
0: In the last, should we say, 20 years or so, um, there's been an enormous um, startup wave, um, and there have been many successful startups breaking through and achieving uh, global fame or global notoriety, and and most importantly, global impact, and becoming very um, well-established companies that sit amongst sort of global behemoths and and do not look out of place. Um, But 20, 30 years ago, they didn't exist. And I guess some of the best examples of those are are companies like Google and Amazon, uh, and then more recently, sort of companies like Uber and Airbnb and things like this. And there are many, many, many more. Um, The reality is that sort of 95, 99% of all the world's biggest companies are established Um, you know, uh, old wave companies, shall we say. Companies that have existed before this modern um, sort of entrepreneurialism, wave of entrepreneurialism. And and in the past sort of 20, 30 years, there's been uh, many reasons why Startups have become more successful, I think. Um, and some of them are sort of access to capital. Um, some of them are evolving customer demands that have opened up loads of new opportunities uh, and probably faster evolving customer demands than, than before. Um, very important ones are enabling technology, um, things like cloud technology, things like smartphones, and and, and, and now we're, we're moving into 5G and all of this stuff. Uh, and of course, things like blockchain, but all of these enabling technologies that create the rails to build new business models on, on top of or to power new, business models. And as technology rapidly grows, and as our access to data has rapidly grown, this has enabled these companies to to build, you know, genuinely powerful propositions for people. Other things is regulation and shifts in regulation. Um, But there's all sorts of reasons why these startups have made a breakthrough. But I think the most important reason is that When you're a startup and and, and you're just trying to figure out um, what is a proposition that customers will buy, uh, you don't have inertia. So you can't wait, you have to figure something out, otherwise you'll die. Um, if If you are not innovative, if you do not find um, uh, fit with a customer demand um, and then you do not find a solution that that, 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 is, that brings value to that customer, then you will die because you will run out of money you will run out of runway if you 're a corporate um, and you 're a large established corporate um, within reason you can actually uh, you know not evolve and not innovate for quite a long period of time and just keep chugging along. Um, and, and you won't die uh, because you've got significant assets and you've got significant cash reserves or you've got access to capital, you can generate it um, or you can restructure and change or you can leverage the assets you already have to create new revenue streams and things like this. But you don't necessarily need to be changing the paradigm um, and you already have a load of customers you can rely on that customer base for established companies at scale. Um, and so really, I think what we've seen in the last 20, 30 years is that companies, startups that break through, have to have, to do it, an institutional competence of new business building. So new venture creation, institutional competence to identify a need, build a solution that solves for that need, that can genuinely capture value, and then scale it and grow. And that's what we've seen with some of those uh, startup companies that I mentioned before. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that corporates have that institutional competence of new business building, new venture building. Um, But I think the change is now shifting. Because the corporate world, um, you know, I don't think it's the case that, you know, the corporate world is immediately under threat that they will not exist in two, three, four years. In some industries, yes. In some spaces, yes. Some particular corporates, yes. Um, but the corporate world is, is slowly evolving and changing and moving forward and becoming more innovative and experimenting in different places. And the fact is they have so much scale um, and they have so many assets uh, that they're not going out of business tomorrow, no matter how many startups come through. Um, but the reality is that these corporates that for long-term value, they will also need to be able to build new businesses. They will also need to evolve what it is that they do today. And they'll also be able to need to be able to create and capture new value. And the way to do that is to have this institutional competence of new business building. So until now, the corporates have had all the assets, and the startups in the main have been the ones who excel at new business building. Um, what we've seen in the past 20, 30 years is that competence beats assets alone. Um, but I think what we know um, is that competence plus assets will beat competence alone. So if the corporate sector has this institutional competence of new venture building, um, then I actually feel that the window of opportunity for startups will close. Uh, because if you're coming to the, to, to the fight just with competence, and your opponent is coming with competence plus assets, then you will lose. And if that means that then startups uh, are not able to break through, where will the innovation come from? The innovation will come from the corporate sector. Uh, And so I believe the majority of innovation in in the past 20, 30 years has come from startups, but I think that balance will shift. Not sure exactly how long that will take. Um, and, and, And when that does happen, I think the innovations that we see will come through corporates, established corporates, building new ventures, basically building new startups. And, and they won't. I don't think they will be doing that within. I don't think it will be corporates just bringing new sort of uh, same-branded um, business lines to the table. They will genuinely be building new businesses outside of their existing business. They will be building them in a startup fashion, in a startup environment. They will be building them with genuine entrepreneurial talent, with seasoned professional entrepreneurs. Um, but I do think that the the opportunity is for corporates to to do this in a way that that startups actually can't without the assets. And that's really what. I'm sort of focusing my efforts on now and the work that we do is about powering that shift so powering the shift to a world where corporates um, are the the ones with this institutional competence of new business building does
2: that the way I've described it does that make sense it does yeah it makes perfect sense um the I guess you actually answered the the question that, that came to mind towards the end there with regards to it kind of made me think well what is the what con- what what are the constituent parts of this organisational competence it, it, that's required? Yep. Um, but you you kind of aren't because I, I, I it, in, it makes me think that maybe it's a challenge to achieve that within what you immediately think of as a corporate environment. Things like flexibility, creativity, um, getting around organisational politics, and the, the speed at which a small organisation can manoeuvre. But if you're kind of if you if the model is that they're outsourcing. The, for lack of a better word, then, then it sounds like the environment will already exist for, that, for those things to, to flourish.
0: Yeah, so, so I, you're, you're totally right um, that things like the sort of existing um, institutional structure and, and, and the process and bureaucracy that exists within a large company, which I think is unavoidable, um, inevitably hinder um, the, the possibility of creating new business. Um, The the reason is that that startups that do well, they need to run multiple experiments. They need to move quickly. They need to respond to the data. They can't be restricted by somebody's overriding agenda that sits above it. um, and, And they need to basically... Um, develop in line with what the market is asking them to do, um, and, and that's difficult um, from within a corporate. Um, but I'm, so, but I, I, I think I wouldn't say it's outsourcing. So the the way I see this happening is if you think about any established corporate, then let's say that they have sort of five parts to their business, five separate business lines. In each of those business lines, let's call it an, an old wave. Business line, so it's like it's like the, the, the typical corporate status quo, um, and, and let's label them as red. So you've got five red business lines, um, and then let's say you've got a startup on the outside doing everything fantastically well as a you know new uh, having that total institutional new venture build competence, um, and let's say that's blue. Um, what the corporate needs to do, in my mind, is transition to a point in time where all of its business lines are institutionally blue. The difficulty and what many corporates have tried to do is, well, let's just acquire some um, successful startups, bring them in as a new business line. Mm. But as soon as you bring in that successful blue um, sort of cylinder into your into your red organization, then inevitably the blue becomes a bit purple. And it's tainted and diluted by the process and by the bureaucracy and by the organizational structure that exists there, the hierarchy, the reporting, the compliance, the central functions, all of those different things. Um, And and so the institutional competence is, is diluted and it becomes more of a purple company. And now it can't compete with the startups in the wild that have that genuine, um, continued, maintained uh, institutional new venture competence. So I think that the solution is actually to build a portfolio of blues in the wild. Um, And as your red business lines slow down or become less impactful, or even if they don't, you, you feel the time is right, um, there needs to be a wholesale shift. So basically a divestment of all of the, uh, the red business lines and replacement by the blue lights. And now what does the company look like? It's a full blue company. It's institutionally uh, embedded with that, that new venture build competence. Um, the only way that happens is if the corporate has the right to acquire en masse all of those blue business lines. Uh, and so the way to do that is to create those companies uh, and to invest financially in those companies and to take ownership in those company companies mm-hmm. along with the founding teams of those companies. Um, And and this is uh, the the way that sort of I approach doing it. Um, So that you have the corporate owns part of this company, the founders, CEO, CTO, the rest of the founding team, they also own part of the company. Uh, And at a certain point in time, the corporate has the option to acquire the whole and consume the whole. Uh, but I believe this should be done at a point in time when you can acquire all of these external blue companies en masse and divest all of your red companies en masse. So it's, it's uh, I don't know if it's outsourcing, I think it's partnering. Uh, you're effectively the corporate becomes a co-founder in the new ventures with the entrepreneurs who will be building it Uh, but one thing you talked about the difficulties and the reasons why it's not possible or or the sort of building blocks to be able to do it I think it's reasonably simple um, or at least uh, on a top level it's simple the the things that need to be in place to effectively build these new ventures is ideation capability uh, and the talent to do that so talent ideation, the process of venture validation and venture development, uh, appropriate governance structures that treats the startup like a startup rather than like a large organization, mm-hmm. uh, and funding. Um, and, and, and typically, the from a corporate perspective, Funding, particularly at that early stage uh, of these startups, you know that's easy enough to do. Um, governance is very difficult because you have to set it up uh, very differently uh, to, to how you typically run your existing company. Talent is very difficult because the reality is there are not many seasoned professional entrepreneurs sitting within corporates, so you have to go outside and find them. But then you need to incentivize them as they're incentivized in the wild with equity upside. Um, and you need to create an environment where they want to work, where they're passionate to work on this, um, which typically in, in many corporate environments, you know, entrepreneurs uh, feel stifled. Um, and, and and so I think that's a bit more difficult. And then ideation and process, if it's being run by seasoned professional entrepreneurs, then you would expect it, it should be pretty good. Um, but if it's being done internally by, you know, Typical corporate strategists and things like that. Not to say there's anything wrong with their approach, and they, these are super smart people um, and, and super effective in the work that they do, but the work that they do is, is often not create a new startup from scratch. Um, so it's kind of like if we needed to call somebody up to, to, to go to the World Cup and, and be the sort of step-in, last-minute striker um, for, our, for our football team, then we would call a, somebody who played football. Uh, we wouldn't say, oh, well, we'll get somebody from tennis. They should be able to do it. Um, and I think the, the same is true when, when you're looking at who's running the process and the, and the ideation process, the validation process for a, a, a new company. You need somebody who's done that who's been in the weeds building new ventures, rather than, oh, well, this guy has been doing m within our organization. He understands the organization really well. Let's give him a go at it. Uh, because he, when he gets to the World Cup, he just won't be able to
2: compete. That sounds, well, it sounds pretty cool. It sounds exciting. And, I and you know, that's it, a kind of summary of what you're doing at the moment with rainmaking, I guess. And- uh, yeah,
0: and I think the, the, the reality of this stuff is that this is, I mean, globally, um, corporate venture building is a reasonably new um, phenomenon. And, uh, and I think that there is no definitive answer about the best way to do this or the right way to do this. Um, and, and that's what's being created right now. And, and it's super exciting for me because I just find it genuinely inspiring to to see the impact we can have by building new ventures by, that, that leverage the assets that these corporates have. So I can, I can give you specific examples. So, so we did a venture um, <clears throat> in Europe with, uh, with DHL, and, uh, and, and, and when we were working on that venture, we needed to run experiments in, in, in warehouses. Um, now, if you and I set up a company tomorrow in the wild, um, then we would need to go and find a partner to enable us to run those experiments. Uh, whereas in this Sorry. scenario, uh, we could just switch on those experiments overnight. Uh, because we're partnered with the corporate and that we, we have and they have access to the assets. Uh, we're doing something um, in Asia at the moment, um, which is in the solar industry. Um, and, and, and our partner is, has an enormous solar practice. So we're building something new that doesn't actually exist, but we can lean on the assets that exist already in the, in the, in the sort of corporate parent, um, which enables us to basically get the data that we need far more rapidly so we can validate every assumption we have along the journey far more rapidly, and what that basically means is our time to scale is shorter, our time to impact is shorter, and if we learn that this doesn't make sense and we should shut the venture down, then we'll figure that out a lot more quickly, so we will spend, us, corporate, uh, time investment, cost investment, everybody involved, will spend far less time in getting to the point of, we shouldn't do this, um, than if we don't leverage those corporate assets. So that's, that's from my perspective, super exciting and, and yes that's really what what we're doing at the moment and, and I think globally there's there's a lot of interesting companies doing this like us um and 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 overall the the sector is moving forward very quickly um, and I think it's super exciting
2: yeah it it sounds it sounds great i mean just the concept of bridging the gap between uh, an organization that is that is limited in its size versus an organization well in both respects actually whether it's large or small those limitations bridging the gap just seems completely logical and like the best place to be in terms of accelerating progress um so if if how how do you think about things at a sort of strategic level with regards to like sectors or industries do you are there particular industries that you that you target that you that you see as evolving particularly in the next you know five to ten years and that's how you choose your your lines of work or how does that process work
0: yeah i mean personally i think i would i would love to build a uh, a venture in the legal industry um having having started there um if there's anybody listening <laughs> to the podcast who is uh, you know who who runs a law firm then and thinks it's exciting to build something new then let's let's have a chat about it but more <laughs> seriously um in terms of areas of focus so so yeah i mean globally within our company, we have um, industries of, of interest, shall I say, when we're, we're, we're pretty industry agnostic, so we're not bound to, um, to specific industries, and what we, we don't sort of consider ourselves specialists in any industry. We're, we consider ourselves specialists in, in in the process and methodology of, of innovation and new venture creation, yeah. um, rather than you know, having a particular industry bent. Um, we've done a lot of work traditionally in um, financial services, in insurance, in digital health, uh, smart cities and mobility. Uh, We have a a significant amount of work in transport industry, in maritime, um, and and in energy. Um, I think in in APAC, in sort of my part of the world and the work that I focus on, we have a a bigger presence and a bigger focus um, in things like um, smart buildings, smart precincts and smart cities. Um, smart mobility, construction, architecture, real estate um, and, and definitely energy and power. Um, so these are sort of big areas for us but globally we don't, we don't say for example, well these are our five industries and we don't want to work in anything else. Mm.
2: Yeah, so, the thing I mean, for us is
0: really, where, where, is, where are the biggest, biggest opportunities to deliver value? And if it's exciting and we can you know, see a path to a, a genuinely interesting business and a genuinely impactful business model, uh, and if we believe that we have a corporate partner that can put assets on the table that support, uh, support the, the startup to, to, to deliver that impact, then it's worth at least looking at um, rather than just saying, okay, well, we only, we only act in A, B and C industries. Mm.
2: It sounds great. It sounds really exciting and really interesting uh, and no wonder it's just, it's an interesting journey, isn't it? To reflect on your, your start point, I guess, with, with law and to, and to where you've ended up, you kind of uh, yeah. you, you've achieved your, achieved your goal and found, uh, found a role in an organization that matches your aspiration.
0: Yeah, and I think it's you know like we sort of touched on before. I think the reality is that these to to get from where you are and, and you're not happy to, to 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 being in a place where you're genuinely professionally fulfilled. And, and and I can honestly say that yeah, my my work is not perfect, and it's not the case that every single piece of work I'm doing every single day is the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. That's just not the world that we live in. Um, but I I could not be more um, excited generally about what I do and where I am um, which is a sea change from when I first started out Um, and I think the 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 path to that has been topsy-turvy and has been up and down and and I've enjoyed some roles and I've hated other roles and I've worked with some brilliant people and I've worked frankly with some people that that I don't respect the way that they work Um, and all of these different things have contributed to my sort of learning and my own thinking about how to build teams and how to build a company and the type of work that I want to do, the type of people that I want to work with. Um, and, and, and I think once you get very, once you get a lot of clarity on your own wants and your own needs and your own aspirations, if you stay true to these, rather than getting you know going off down paths because you feel like it's a you know it's a it should build a skill set that might be useful in the future, or it's something that's transferable, or you can make a bit more money in the short term by doing something that you don't really think gets you to your end goal, I think they're the mistakes um, doing things like that, uh, and I think you have to you know really focus on honestly what makes you proud? What will you be inspired to, to say that you've sort of shared and contributed to the world? Um, and, and then to to, to to keep a pretty strict path, like trying to get to that point. Um, it's the way I've approached it. And, and I've really only distilled it into that type of thinking after the fact. Um, but but the, the, the good steps I've made is when I've taken a risk and what, when I've followed uh the path that that i think best aligns with um you know with 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 what i can be proud of and the parts where i've taken missteps is when i've perhaps been reactive to you know um financial incentives or prestige or or things like that And, and that's taken me down the wrong direction
2: yeah well that's uh I think that that even that reflection in itself. If, if anyone listens to any part of the podcast, though, they're probably becoming right right towards the end. But it's it's a great reflection, um, and uh, and hopefully people will take some some value from it. I think it's really I, I certainly have. I think it's it's a great way to to look at things and quite uh, quite inspirational, really. I think Rainmaking just sounds like a very cool organization, um, and you know to get to to get the position to the position that you're in now must be it must be really good fun working there so um if people if people wanted to connect with you or or follow your work in more detail what what are the best methods for them to do that
0: um can connect with me on on linkedin i'm uh, samuel hall on there um i have i have a, a blog that i don't write on too often uh, but by all means you can connect with me there which is um sam al hall s-a-m-a-l-h-a-l-l uh, dot ghost g-h-o-s-t dot i-o um they're probably the best two ways i'm on all the social and stuff like that but i but I, i'm not super not super active on things like twitter and things like that yeah
2: cool well that's that's great sam thank you hugely for your time i really appreciate it it's, it's been a great. Great discussion, and I'm sure it will help people. And uh, g- keep keep doing what you're doing, and in- enjoy Singapore, and enjoy rainmaking.
0: No, thank you. It's been been super fun. Um, really good to speak to you, uh, and, I, and I genuinely appreciate it. So, so
2: thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Sam. Take care. Super. Cheers. Bye bye.